The Golden Stallion, the Man of Tomorrow, Savzu, the Rated R Radio Star, here for you for a little Wednesday Q&A, and I know you love it. Well, you got it, baby. <laughs> so, and we're going to cover, wow, I, I actually plan on covering a lot of ground um, in this one. And, boy, you know, I found that I've had to save or kind of store up the tech questions. I'm getting almost no tech questions whatsoever. You know, everybody's asking philosophy or history or something like that, which is totally fine. And I recently did a poll. If you're a Sovereign Tech patron, you're able to take part in the poll of what kind of content that people liked. Now, the the, the highest vote was for, you know, do everything, talk about it all, the geek stuff, whatever. Um, and and obviously that's, that's what I, you know, plan on doing generally. Um, but after that, after, you know, choosing all of the above, the most popular ones were anarchism, philosophy, uh, and, and history. And tech was like, it was the bottom rung. <laughs> so it's, it's whatever, you know, whatever the patrons desire, of course. Uh, well, I mean, you know, ultimately it comes down to what I want to talk about, I suppose. But, um, yeah, uh, so we're going to get into a little bit of tech here. Uh, it's actually the second part of a question I, I answered uh, it a little while ago. And then we're going to get into some, really, we'll, we'll probably get into some history and, and maybe even a spot of ethics. And last week, uh, I didn't give out an album of the week. So I'm going to give you two albums this week, even though they're by the same uh, the same person. Um, but we'll I'll save that for uh, for the end. So anyway, I know a lot of people are probably wondering, hey, Stallion, could you talk about Vault 7? And I mean, holy shit, my social media has been blowing up with people saying, uh, can't wait to hear Sovereign Tech this week, you know, talking about Vault 7 and everything. I will be talking about Vault 7 um, this coming week. The one thing I'm going to put out there, though, right now, is that you keep right on using Signal. That... that I'm just going to give you a little preview. Look, I am so fucking skeptical of WikiLeaks, Julian Assange. Hell, I'm even skeptical of Snowden. Okay, but WikiLeaks in particular, um, as late, I'm skeptical of them. WikiLeaks in particular, uh, I, I think they were they were spreading a lot of BS, honestly, on Twitter uh, uh, yesterday. Of course, I'm recording this on March 8th, uh, 12,017 HE. Um, and on the 7th is when they did the release of Vault 7, the largest CIA cache of, do- or, you know, release of cache documents from the CIA or whatever, uh, cache of documents, I should say. And, you know, like they were saying, oh, yeah, the encryption's broken on all these different things. And, and look, and I'm, I'm just touching on this quickly. And I already said it long before anybody else in my social circles, you know, brought any of this up. yes. The, you know, Android and iOS have very serious security problems, okay? Those are legitimate. However, the claims that WikiLeaks is making is that the encryption itself was broken on, say, uh, on, say, Signal and some other things. Now, getting into the other apps, you know, that's another story. But as far as the, you know, the Signal protocol, the Axolotl protocol is not broken, and really for, you know, for, for what's at, or I mean, I'm sorry, for WikiLeaks to hint at that, to, or, you know, to, to make that suggestion. And they did, and they tried to state it as fact. I'm glad Open Whisper Systems gave them some pushback because it's just not true. Signal's not broken. Is the OS broken? And does that mean that regardless of what Signal's encryption is, that, 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 that it doesn't really matter? Okay, that's a wholly separate conversation. But to suggest that Signal was broken was an outright, I mean, it was an outright falsehood. So you keep on using Signal. We'll talk all about it 
this week, uh, I mean, if I got to spend an hour covering all of these documents and everything that came out, because it's not just Signal, you know, that that, that came out. There's shit about the TVs. There's shit about Windows. Um, there's, you know, there's tons of stuff. And I will, of course, have solutions for you. I won't just, you know, moan and groan. Okay, I will have absolute solutions for you, the actionable ones that you can do right now, and those will be coming, uh, you know, this this Saturday. Uh, so anyway, I just want you to know, yep, I'm on top of it. I'm I'm reading through this stuff. There's no way I'm going to read every document, you know, before Saturday. But as far as what we do know and what I have read, I will definitely be commenting on it. Uh, and you know, it'll be. I mean, I'll, I'll probably end up titling the this week's episode. It'll be episode 216. I'll probably end up titling it uh, Vault Vault Seven Solutions. So keep a lookout for that. Um, okay. So, yeah, wow. Now, a lot of people, boy, I got a lot of response. Of course, episode 215 had the lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy on with me. Um, And a lot of people, you know, I I released the new intros, finally, the new segment intros, new interstitials. Uh, And, boy, I mean, people, people really liked them. (laughs) And I am am so honored by that. I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoy them. Got a lot of plans, you know, coming up for a lot of that shit, uh, and and definitely looking at, uh, you know, having some, uh, some good times with it all. So anyway, uh, why don't we get into, why don't we start getting into some of the questions here? Uh, and the first question pretty much it, I had, there was a question about Bitcoin wallets, uh, about maybe three, three Q and a episodes back. And well, it wasn't about about Bitcoin wallets. It was about BitSquare and 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 just talking about like kind of the Bitcoin arguments uh, in general. Which, by the way, if if I if memory serves, I think Bitcoin Core just implemented uh, segregated witness, which I said I was totally fine with. I'm fine with with SegWit, uh, and and it doesn't you know SegWit can act you know on its own. It doesn't have to be part and parcel with the Lightning Network and all that. It has its own advantages, uh, which I talked about. And so that that happened. So, hey, rock and roll, <laughs> you know, no, no argument from me, uh, you know, on, on, on that you know, being a thing. Um, so anyway, the question that that I missed, it was like the, it was like one sentence in that whole question had to do with what did I think about various Bitcoin hardware wallets? Um, and I get asked about this a lot. In fact, I, I have I have clients that ask me you know, hey, what what's the best wallet solution for me to go with, etc. You know, we, we've crowdsourced or, you know, uh, yeah, we'll say crowdsourced knowledge. <laughs> I think there's another term for that. It's escaping me. But they asked around, you know, other other experts, perhaps, uh, or people that claim to be experts, you know, what did what did they trust? What did they want to use, etc. Um, and, you know, hardware wallets inevitably, you know, come up. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to cover my thoughts on hardware wallets here uh, briefly, and then we're going to get into uh, a couple other questions. So, okay, um, hardware wallets in general. Now, there's a few out there. Some are, you know, some are a little more well-known than, than others. Some are just clones of others, right? Like with, there's Trezor. A lot of people know about Trezor, but then there's, what is it? B wallet, which is just like a clone of Trezor because Trezor is, you know, largely open source. Um, you know, there's cool wallet. I mean, there's, there's a whole slew, um, of these different hardware wallets. And then there's like these card wallets, um, that, that various companies, uh, do, you know, where it's like, it's just a little like metal card usually because they like to say that it's fireproof and all this shit, right? Um, you know, it's it's a little card that. Well, I mean, the the flaws. Okay, so here's the thing: when when you're talking about these these 
cards they're not it's not really a hardware wallet in that it's a um uh, like bitstashers bitstashers is one of them that does this okay um it's not like it's more like a paper wallet than it is something that has any like electronics to it you know that's like a device it's not really a device it's just simply you know like a, a, a little wallet card just like a paper wallet you know that'll have a qr code and whatever else on it uh now the inherent dangers with with these is that you don't unlike paper wallets even which we could talk for a minute about paper wallets here but unlike you know paper wallets are a thing that, that you make and you know you print out a couple qr codes on it and that you know one that you can send to and then one that you can take you, you know you can withdraw from it um paper wallets are an interesting idea there's you know you want to be really really careful when you're doing paper wallets because you know printers most printers are internet connected and can send data of what they printed out um you know to whoever's say looking for it so there are inherent dangers uh with printers and in fact we talked about uh it was a couple weeks ago i think it was we talked about on sovereign tech during internet of targets we talked about how or i even played the audio where a printer you know a localized printer could actually without even being connected you know to the internet could as long as somebody you know updated the firmware on it and 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 loaded you know kind of custom firmware or in this case malware uh it could send out you know am you know am band as an am radio audio signals you know that that could that speaks words you know that if you had an am radio you could listen to uh we we talked about this uh what was it free freecast or something now I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the bug or well it's not really a bug but i'm forgetting the name of the of the exploit but anyway you know that's no internet required right and so if somebody was really targeting you you know even the most secure implementation of doing a paper wallet where uh you're printing it out from like a, a live cd of ubuntu or something and you know you're making sure that the printer is actually not connected to the internet it's it's direct connected to uh, to the computer that you're running the live distro off of you know all, all of this you're doing you're taking all the steps you still have that problem where you you know your printer could effectively thanks to you know the wonders of iot could spread the word out you know that that of, of what you're doing maybe even it could it could spell out your private key or something right uh so paper wallets you know you kind of have the problem of the printer being inherently secure insecure right like i mean especially now you know more so and it really speaks to the fact that you know with with, with the paper wallet thing it really speaks to the fact that you if you're targeted you're fucked but you got to be targeted right and most people aren't targeted and not only that it's not that most people aren't just tar targeted but like even all of that data honestly that that can get collected right like okay so so say like with vault 7 the cia can collect everything yes they can collect everything but they can't store everything forever they really can't okay one need only look at the challenges where is it in utah with like the nsa build you know where, where they're trying to store everything you know and the, the hard drives are constantly lighting on fire because you just can't store everything you just can't okay so you know yes everything can be collected and if you're targeted like i said you're absolutely screwed that's not new for sovereign tech listeners okay i've always said that if that if you're no matter what steps you take i don't care what the fuck you're using if you are targeted by an alphabet soup organization or you know a particularly determined and and skillful uh a, you know cracker malicious actor bad actor um 
you're done. You know, you're you're screwed. But you've got to be targeted, and and that's you know. But there's ways to mitigate being targeted. So anyway, um, so paper wallets, yeah. There's you know, there's dangers there. Now. One could say that, well, you know, these like machined, you know, these aluminum kind of, uh, uh, you know, wallets, maybe they'd be a little more secure. Well, of course, you know, they're using probably some kind of CAD software, uh, you know, to, to make them, you know, to kind of the, the 3D model, the QR code. So still the private keys are being stored somewhere. And, and again, I get it, you know, it's like a paper wallet, but understand that you're not the one. In this case, here's the real problem, because you're saying, well, okay, I might not be able to print securely, but maybe somebody else can. Here's the thing. If somebody else is doing it, they could potentially hold on to your private keys and say weeks or months or whatever down the line, you know, they, they could access your private keys and, you know, take all your, all your Bitcoin and you never even knew until you go to check your, you know, your little, your little aluminum card wallet, right? And, uh, and it's gone, you know, and it's empty. So trusting companies like that, I don't necessarily recommend. I mean, you want to say that when they're little companies and they're big on the community, that they're really just trying to do the right thing. But, you know, if you're talking large amounts, I don't know. I, I, I feel like you're, you're really, really rolling the dice, uh, you know, when, when, when you do that. So anyway, um, another popular option that people go with outside of paper wallets or card, you know, like these aluminum card wallets, which are just glorified paper wallets, really, uh, you know, is actual hardware wallets, you know, just little USB keys that you can plug into a computer and then, you know, you can kind of sneaker net it, right? They don't connect to anything, which is certainly an advantage. Um, and, and they will, you know, you can, you can access it and they'll kind of have its own little software on there that can run on whatever computer you happen to have. Um, and you can use that as your, uh, you know, as, as, as your Bitcoin wallet, right? Makes for great cold storage. You know, that's, that's kind of the, the, what gets put out there. You know, that's the marketing that gets put out there. So, and I, and I mentioned a, a couple of them. There's, you know, there's, there's Trezor, um, there's the Ledger wallet, uh, which those get interesting because they, they do like smart card stuff where it can work through NFC, uh, which I, I haven't used one, but I'm guessing that that can connect to like a smartphone, kind of like how, uh, uh, like YubiKey, like there's the YubiKey Neo, right? Which is great for, uh, for two factor authentication, um, where the YubiKey can, you know, it'll have NFC so it can actually connect to, uh, to a smartphone you know, through NFC, but then also it'll have a USB port so it can connect to a computer and you can use it that way too. Um, YubiKey is something that I really, especially in light of recent events, that really needs to, I, I need to be pushing a little bit harder um, that I'll probably be, I'll be talking about it in, in upcoming episodes of Sovereign Tech. But um, anyway, there's a, there's KeepKey, uh, you know, there, there's a few of these out there. Now, the one thing that I can tell you that I'm actually... So hardware wallets, and, and I have one other option that I'm going to talk about, but it's kind of unique, so I'm, I'm going to save that. Um, one, one of the concerns that I have with, with hardware wallets isn't even necessarily a technical concern, though there are those, and I'm going to cover them in a second, okay? But my number one concern is, is that, like, I'm kind of aware of some of these companies, and they're not doing very well financially. And... I, you know, you can say that there's the incentive for them to look, if they don't make their stuff secure, then, you know, what is the point of their business anyway? <sighs> I don't know. I, I worry when companies are really strapped. Like I know some of these companies are that make these hardware wallets, like they don't have money. Um, 
and and you know some of them want money that's the thing like if it's one thing if like say trezor well trezor's just doing it for the love of community and you know they're okay if they you know they don't need to make uh you know millions of dollars or anything um they just want to bring something into the world that they wish existed and like if that's how they think and i don't know that that's how trezor thinks but if that's how they think you know great then that that's a very different story but i think a lot of these companies are really trying and well actually i know a couple of them are really trying, you know, to make this a, a very serious business. And look, they don't have any money. Like they, they can't, they can barely pay their people. They can't do advertising. They can't do shit. And that scares the hell out of me. You know, when, when they don't have, when they don't have the money to, you know, to fund what they do. Um, so, you know, th- in my opinion, that's a huge security risk right there. One that usually that honestly, a lot of security professionals don't think about. Okay, I'm kind of in the unique position that that's an area where I often think is, uh, well, anyway, you know, it's important to follow the attitude. I say that all the time. I say, don't follow the money, follow the attitude. And some of these guys might have great attitudes, but also some of their attitudes directly correlates to, okay, we need to make money. And if that's their attitude, uh, then I'm scared. Okay, because if you're really like being into security, you know, necessarily like to, to make a ton of money, to make a lot of money and to create a huge business and all that stuff. Um, I think you run into conflicting interests at certain points, you know, and, and for example, I mean, for, for a grand example would be, uh, Kevin Mitnick with his new company who he's pretty much now he's like, Oh yeah, no, no, I'll, I'll sell zero days to governments and to other people. I won't just like release it out into the wild. And well, you know, what good could come of that? Oh, great. He makes a few bucks. And I'm not saying he's necessarily being unethical. Well, I mean, I think selling to governments is kind of unethical, but, <laughs> but you know, that, that creates all, all kinds of problems. And that's where, you know, even, even the greatest of hackers, uh, you know, can, can really fall apart in my opinion. Like, and I, I think that's ugly business, you know? And so I worry when someone wants to be able to keep the lights on, you know, what, what part of their ethics and security are they willing to bend? Uh, so that, that's a, that's a very serious concern of mine, uh, you know, as, as far as that goes. Um, another major concern, and this is, this is a little more of a, of a technical, uh, one, and that is, you know, but a lot of this can often come down to, again, do they make enough money? Can they hire the right people? You know, what's the quality of the designers and the engineers and the programmers and all that, right? Um, you know, you could end up with, so, okay. So the hardware wallets on their own, this isn't a software based thing where, where like you could really check it, you know, say if it's, if it's open source software, um, you know, the, the entire Bitcoin, you know, wallet ecosystem and the Bitcoin ecosystem in general really relies upon random number generators. Of course, all cryptography relies on this, all security relies on this. Okay. And those random number generators, which is what's going to generate your keys. Okay. The thing is, is that it's very tough to really trust a hardware wallet's implementation of a random number generator. And what could happen in the future is that, I mean, what might be happening is you're actually getting pseudo randomness because you can't really test it yourself. And in the future, you know, like, like some kind of very dedicated attacker could really, you know, spoof your keys. Uh, so that, that's a major problem with hardware wallets. Uh, you know, that, that's a big area of, of lack of trust. Um, and then of course, you know, the other thing with, you know, I mean, here's a very simple one for you. I mean, like we said, you know, there's money issues. Could the production process of the hardware wallet 
could you end up, you know, could there be, uh, you know, could the NSA, CIA, whoever, uh, you know, invade the production process, you know, like exploit the production process, like put, you know, do whatever they do, like they did with uh, kind of the Jamalto SIM cards, right? Um, I mean, like the, the production process is very scary. The shipping process, and we know this, we've talked about this on Sovereign Tech in the past, where it was in, I think it was in the Snowden documents, where the NSA was absolutely intercepting packages and, and putting various exploits, hardware or software on, uh, on devices, you know, before it got to the recipient. So you've got that issue as well. Like, you know, could, could there be some kind of tampering that's going on? Like, again, either in production or in shipping. So hardware wallets are, are concerning, you know, in and of themselves, uh, you, you know, just just from some of those. I mean, the, the big one is kind of the random number generator. If you're you know, if we want to talk about implementation itself, um, among other you know problems, there could be an implementation. But then, uh, you know, the, the shipping, the production and just, you know, again, compromising humans, you know, in, in their need for money. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a real roll of the dice. It's a real, you know, roll of the dice. It's a real risk. You know, I, I think you're really playing with fire when when you when you go for these hardware wallets. Um, unless it's from like a really, I mean, you've got to really trust the person that's doing it. I mean, you got to really fucking trust them, you know, and, and there's, I, you know, I can think of processes where like, you know, you could feel a little more comfortable about it, like where servers could get, you know, effectively melted and lit on fire uh, after, after a production run or something. I mean, like there's, there's all kinds of, you know, really drastic steps uh, that could be taken that, you know, might, might engender a little more trust. Uh, but boy, am, am I not, am I not comfortable with that? Now, there, what I am comfortable with as far as now, I'll tell you what I think the best wallets are and, and maybe some hardware solutions that, that, that could be, you know, taken as, uh, as legitimate. Um, one of them being, and, and here, here's kind of the, the, the odd thing, because I don't think that this is even, I don't think these are even sold anymore. And that is Pi Wallet. And I actually, I just went earlier today, I just went to the website to see if these were still being sold and like the store is down. So, but you could, you could create this on your own. What Pi Wallet was, and it was pi-wallet.com. Okay, what Pi Wallet was, all it was was a Raspberry Pi, thus the name Pi. It was, it was a Raspberry Pi. And on that Raspberry Pi, it was, it was just, you know, it, it was pretty much just running, um, you know, running Armory the Armory uh, Bitcoin wallet, okay, which, you know, I'll, I'll let the cat out of the bag. That is the wallet that I recommend, you know, full stop. Like, just unquestionably, the Armory wallet is top of the line. It, it is as good as it gets. Um, it gets plenty of funding. There, There is, to the best of my knowledge, they have they don't have concerns as far as money. Uh, and, like, really, the Bitcoin community... I mean, even if they were, I'm pretty sure the Bitcoin community would step up and be donating pretty hardcore to Armory if, if they were running into some kind of issues. Because, you know, it's just it's so used by so many people. It is their go to, you know, cold storage. Uh, I mean, and, and it's it's solid as a is a fucking rock as far as Bitcoin wallets go. I mean, it's just it's been the name for years. It, it's It's been the name, you know, to, to really run with. So. Uh, Pi Wallet uh, is, you know, again, you could do this on your own. And, and this is really getting to one of the solutions for hardware wallets where, you know, you, you could you could just have a Raspberry Pi and you could run, you know, a slightly more traditional OS if you wanted onto it. Um, but then, 
you know, you're, you're putting on Armory, you know, obviously running some kind of Linux or BSD or something, uh, like free BSD on a, on a Pi is a great idea. Uh, and then you're running Armory, and then that, you know, that machine, all that does is, you know, act as a Bitcoin wallet. I mean, and come on, these things cost, you know, 35 bucks for a full kit, 50 bucks. You know, there's there's really no good reason not to do that. Uh, or, you know, why, why that's not viable for, for a lot of other people. Um, so you have, you know, that's one hardware wallet option is to use a Raspberry Pi. Uh, you know, you don't have to do Pi wallet. Like I said, you can just fucking do it yourself. You know, it's, it's really not, not that bad. Um, or you could, you know, maybe buy, I mean, and this is an expensive route, but if you wanted maybe the most secure implementation that you could really do is buy like a Libreboot X200 computer. Um, which I keep a link in the show notes for those computers. Uh, like they're, they're out of Britain. The Ministry of Freedom sells them. Um, they are where, you know, the BIOS is totally open source. Like like these, you know, these computers, they're older computers from like 2009, you know, 2011 or 2009, really, I think. There's the T400 and the X200. Um, but they are, you know, completely reverse engineered. You know, you can't get computers like this anymore. You buy one of those. They usually come with Triskel on them, which is a completely open source version of Ubuntu or, you know, like a a, a more, shall I say, um, <laughs> a, a, f- a free software foundation verified version of Ubuntu. How about that? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, run Armory on that and away you go, you know, and then you have it all in one and, and maybe that would just be, you know, your singular Bitcoin wallet and you just encrypt the shit out of it, you know, um, you know, b- right from boot up. Of, of the laptop. So that's, and the X200 is a very small computer, you know, that could be an interesting option for you. Uh, so that's, that's one, of course, that'll cost you, you know, those cost anywhere from, you know, 400 to a thousand dollars, you know, depending on what kind of setup you want for it. Um, the other option would be, I mean, and that's a great option too, actually, like, you know, having that separate computer and X200, like if you wanted to get on with Zcash, um, you can, you can really load out, you know, either a T4, a Libreboot T400 or a Libreboot X200 with, um, you know, with the Zcash wallet and it could handle it because you can put more than four gig of RAM in them. Um, and, and then you could have your Bitcoin wallet as well. And that could be a very, you know, that could be a really nice solution for that. Uh, you know, if you want to be on board with Zcash right now. Um, the other one, and this is, this is one that has a few different ideas that you could do is if you just take an old, an older smartphone of yours, okay? Uh, and if you use that older smartphone as, you know, like, like cut out all the hardware radios on it, like make, make it a completely quiet device, um, install uh, mycelium on it, sideload mycelium onto it, okay? It, the mycelium wallet, so you'd be using an Android device. And then just use that almost like a paper wallet or like one of those card wallets where you completely communicate with that wallet via QR code. Okay. And, you know, and you pull from it and, and, you know, and and you can even reload because, you know, it has this full on wallet on it, but you want to kill everything. You don't want Wi-Fi on it. You don't want anything on it. Okay. That's, that's kind of my favored way to go. Um, and if you can like, you know, put, uh, oh shit, it's not, <laughs> that's terrible. I can't, I can't think of the name of it. It's not cyanogen mod. Oh, it's lineage. Yes. Lineage OS. It took me a second to think of it because cyanogen mod is now lineage OS. Um, so you want to, you want to put, you know, if you can, you want a device that you can put lineage OS on. All right. That way you're a little more open source, um, or even uh, replicant, I think is the totally open source. And in fact, with replicant, like Wi-Fi drivers, I don't even think they work. 
because you know no Wi-Fi driver is open source. So you know if you can run Replicant or Lineage OS on an old, uh, usually this has to be a Nexus device to be able to run Replicant. Um, but you like get an old Nexus 4 or something. You probably get one for a song. Put Replicant on there. Sideload Mycelium. Okay, or whatever Bitcoin, Bitcoin wallet that you can. It doesn't have to be Mycelium. Uh, I don't think Mycelium requires uh, GApps permissions because you're not going to have the Google Play Store on there. You don't want that. No, no Google. Uh, and put that on there. And then, like I said, just use it as like cold storage and, and just, you know, kind of go back and forth with it via QR code. Okay, so that's that that's that's really kind of the, the the direction i'd I'd go with that and i mean and there there's some other options with that if you really need to connect it you could do it through usb um you know to to be able to to kind of pull that off if you had to update things or, or whatever um so those those are those are kind of the hardware wallet implementations that i would run with um you know those those are those are the ones that i that i trust i don't trust i really not 100% i don't i mean it's better than than some but really, like, if, if if somebody said to me, okay, we want to set up a really secure uh, hardware wallet, all right, I would set up, you know, and I would lock down Armory. I would just, you know, download Armory, lock it down, you know, with whatever systems you can, whatever two-factor systems you can, if you use the YubiKey, whatever, you know, make that happen, and and then that's the end of it. If you really wanted to do hardware, I would not get Trezor. Um, I mean, they're better, you know, tre is Trezor better than, say, you know, CryptoKit or better than like a blockchain.info wallet or something like that? Sure. Sure. Maybe, you know, like, I, I mean, depending on how you look at it. Yeah, it could be better than that. But if you're willing to go so far as to have a hardware wallet as, as cold storage, you know, and to hold lots of money. Yeah, I'd probably I would go I would go the armory route or if you wanted to really do hardware, I would do what I described where you're either buying an X200, um, you know, specifically to be a wallet uh, computer or you're doing a Raspberry Pi implementation with armory on it or you're, um, you know, or you're doing the kind of the side load side loaded uh, radio silent, you know, Android device. Um, those those are those are the options that I would uh, that I would run with. So anyway, uh, let's get on to another. I hope that answers the whole hardware Bitcoin wallet thing. I hope I, I broke that down, the potential problems, which there are plenty of them. Not to say there aren't problems with software wallets, too. Certainly, you know, certainly there is. And like cloud-based wallets and all this stuff, there's plenty of problems to go around. It all comes down to personal taste and, you know, what you want to handle, what you're using it for. I mean, really, a lot of these concerns only become concerns if you're talking about using Bitcoin in exceptionally large amounts. You know, that's... I mean, you, you want to take, you know, security seriously at all times, but when you want to get really hardcore about it, it it's really when you're, you know, when it comes down to, um, you know, again, to these large amounts. Um, I know some people talk about potentially storing stuff like on CDs and DVDs. Oh, don't do that. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> CDs and DVDs have very, very, very uh, low shelf lives. Uh, it's burnable ones anyway. Like pressed ones can last 10, 20 years, maybe tops would be 20 years. Usually it's more five to 10. Um, but yeah, don't, don't do that. If you wanted to do MDISC, uh, MDISC might be, might be something to, uh, to consider. So MDISC is something literally, it's a disc, it's a DVD or a Blu-ray, okay, 
that is, and you need to have a special drive that can write to M disks, but it can be read by any DVD drive. Okay, so it, you only need the special technology one way, and that's to do the writing. But you can get DVD writer, M disk writers, I mean, really cheap. Um, in fact, a Sovereign Tech listener actually, you know, purchased one through my wish list at wishlist.zog.ninja for me, and I, I store all the episodes of Sovereign Tech um, on M disks, and M disks can last thousands of years. Uh, <laughs> it's literally written in stone. So, if you wanted to store them on M-Disk, uh, that's an interesting thing, but, yeah, well, anyway, I'm just putting that out there. But don't don't go with that optical storage uh, otherwise outside of M-Disk. I just don't recommend it. Um, okay, yeah, so like I said, hopefully, you know, hopefully we covered that um, to satisfaction. And let's get into, let's get into another question here. Let's, let's get into a little, little history. And this is in reference to actually last week's Q&A, which I got a ton of questions about last week's q and I'm not going to get to all of them in this one. Uh, I had people asking me, what's this about the CIA and, you know, creating LSD and all this different stuff. Um, I will be getting into, and, and other people had comments about drugs in general that I thought were really insightful, um, you know, and, and the, you know, uh, expanding of consciousness and all this. Uh, and I will be, I will save that prop maybe next week's Q and a, I will do those, or maybe even I'll do a special about it. Uh, but I won't be getting to those in this one, but, uh, this, this comment slash question, uh, is actually is related to, um, something I described. Uh, I, it was last week. It was something I briefly talked about when I was talking about, you know, kind of my experiences on free talk live. Um, because I brought up about, you know, how I would mention smallpox blankets to people that say, oh, yay, Western civilization, how advanced we are. And small po- smallpox blankets in, in the idea of they were used against Native Americans, you know, to kind of to wipe out the population. Um, so I'm, I'm going to, you know, listen to last week's episode. You, you'll understand last week's Q&A. If you haven't already, uh, you'll understand the context a little bit better um, on this one. But I'll read the I'll read the comment slash question. And it's actually from Jim Jesus, uh, of of course, you know, one of the freedom fiends, which worms, baby. Uh, and uh, uh, here, I'll read it. So, hey, Brian, great show. I do have one concern that I think I need to issue a caveat before I raise it. I do know what the or what the European settlers and the U.S. government did to the natives, Native Americans being, uh, could only be described as intentional genocide. And it's inexcusable and indefensible. That said, I recall reading that the smallpox blanket story is mostly a myth. A myth. The argument went along the lines that it would require that the settlers would have had secret knowledge about the germ theory long before it was formally discovered. That the most likely reason this happened was unintentional transmission. It's one of the reasons it's advised that we don't try to make contact with uncontacted peoples today. That, that just something as benign as a common flu or cold could wipe them out because they don't have immunities to combat them. Um, I could be totally wrong about this and would love to hear, your retort, uh, hear you retort these claims. I thought this was true until I dated a Native American girl who told me that this was just a myth. I have no dog in this fight, and I think you might know something I don't. If you do, I'd love to hear it. Uh, keep up the good work, and per usual, don't mind if you mention me as the commenter worm. So I mentioned the name just because, yeah, you know, Jim said he didn't mind, uh, you know, if I, if I mentioned it. So, okay, um, yeah, I'm aware, and 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 this 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 is you know we're we're kind of not walking on eggshells, uh, but we're <laughs> we want to we want to tread carefully, you know, on on some of this because it's it's not that so Native Americans getting smallpox happened, okay, like like this this was a thing, and in fact, honestly, it was a thing before. Um, uh, 
you know, b- before the pilgrim, the pilgrims even settled here. Okay, this is a thing, you know, from from Columbus um, onward. Uh, in, in fact, I mean, it, it's really, you know, smallpox itself. And again, this is before any recorded quote unquote blanket incidents, you know, where, where the theory goes is that they would, uh, you know, that that perhaps the British government or even the American government, some people say Andrew Jackson did this, whatever, uh, you know, knew that these blankets were infected with smallpox and that they would, um, you know, they, they would, they would give the Indians these, bl- or, you know, I shouldn't say Indians, they would give the Native Americans these blankets and, you know, and then that would be a way of, of, of kind of, uh, of wiping them out. Now, smallpox infected the Native American, uh, you know, tribes, nations, again, long before anything like that would have, would have been done, you know, from, from, you know, the first time that, you know, uh, the white boys, <laughs> shall we say, or the Europeans anyway, that the Europeans landed, uh, you know, on, uh, you know, on American soil. Um, in fact, prior, you know, just two years before, you know, the, the pilgrims, uh, you know, kind of started their whole thing in New England. Uh, the, really, as, as far as people know, you know, the smallpox wiped out 96% of the Native Americans in Massachusetts alone. So this is before even the pilgrims were here. Uh, so, you, you know, keep, keep, that, keep that in mind. Um, now, where, where it becomes, so yes, smallpox absolutely was a thing long before, you know, there, there was this, you know, rumor or potential rumor um, or idea that, you know, blankets could get used to, to kind of whittle down, um, you know, the population of Native Americans. Okay. So the real, the areas where it becomes myth, or it was done so many times and, and it was record, or it's, I oh, <laughs> trying to be, <laughs> how, to, how to lay this out. There are a multitude of diaries from military personnel uh, that it's in multiple cases over a time span of 50, 60, 70 years that talk about different incidents of, you know, c- kind of of this idea of handing out blankets uh, infected with smallpox to, you know, to, to, to whittle down the population of Native Americans. Okay, now here's the thing is that some of them, yes, the evidence is scant and so they are likely myth. Okay. Uh, it is also, you know, again, it is also very true that really like, you know, smallpox blankets or not is very much what, you know, what brought down, uh, so much of the native American population, for example. Okay. Uh, you know, in Europe at the time, you know, we're talking 18th century. Okay. Uh, you know, maybe early or later 17th century. Uh, but you know, anyway, at that time, Okay, but you know, and, and well, really within that whole time that that we started, you know, you know that that we that Europeans started settling, okay, America and started coming over to America. So that you know, that's a little more than just the 17th and 18th century. So you can say over those hundreds of years, um, you know, Europe was looking at a population of, you know, maybe I don't know how many how many million, uh, like 70 million maybe. Is, would would that be about? And depending upon which estimates, you know, you go by as far as what the Native American population looked like, at least before, you know, the smallpox plague, 
Um, again, not e blankets or not, okay? Just the natural spread of it, you know, going west, whatever. Um, was Is anywhere between 20 to 100 million. Okay, now there's arguments that get made within that itself. And again, I'm, I'm going to talk more about these diary entries, uh, you, you know, that talk about using smallpox blankets, okay? So the argument goes that let's say even if it was conservative, you know, if you were with the conservative 20 million estimate, not even the 100 million estimate, which might be more accurate, of the amount of Native Americans in America when, you know, the, the, the colony, you know, when people started coming to North America, we should say, from Europe. Obviously, the entire European population wasn't coming here. It wasn't all 70 million people. So, you know, you had a very small amount. It wasn't even a million people. How could, the argument kind of goes like this, right? How could, you know, because usually it's all the white man, you know, wiped out um, the Native Americans. The argument goes with that, that some kind of, I guess you could say, European apologists or uh, <laughs> colonial uh, uh, apologists will say, how could we have wiped out that, you know, how, how could how could that many white people or, you know, colonials, how could they have wiped out that many, uh, you know, that many Native Americans, you know, because they outnumbered us a thousand to one, you know, when they were here. How is that possible? Well, OK, so this is th that argument falls pretty flat. All right. <laughs> I mean, it's it's true that it's probably true, I should say that, yes, smallpox, again, Blankets with blankets or without blankets is what really, you know, could, you know, defeated um, the Native Americans, uh, you know, as far as them being kind of a major, a major force on the American continent. Um, again, intentional or otherwise. But look at let's look at Cortez, OK, you know, going after the Aztecs, you know, within that time frame. Now, Cortez had an exceptionally small, uh, you know, force of people. I mean, literally what, I mean, not even just a, f a few thousand, frankly, you know, that was the size of, of Cortez's, you know, little army. Okay. That, that army was taking on a civilization, that being the Aztecs in the millions. How, how, even with guns compared to bows and arrows and spears and whatever other, you know, uh, weapons, you know, other kind of weaponry that the Aztecs had. How, with that kind of numbers that the Aztecs clearly had, how was Cortez able to defeat them so handily? Well, it's a very simple answer. And it's not, now, I'm not praising the, the, uh, the Aztecs. I'm not pra I'm not necessarily praising the culture of the Native Americans or whatever. You know, this isn't some kind of apology on my part. Okay, but here's the simple fact, is that Cortez, the Europeans, you know, the, the, the conquistadors, were mentally capable of killing at that scale. That's it. That's how they won. There, in fact, really, there's no other answer. It wasn't disease for the Aztecs, not at all. You, you, you really don't have much a record of that. Okay, what happened was, is just that Cortez and his men, the small number of them, yes, they had an advanced technology, but psychologically, they were so sick, frankly, that they were able to kill that many people. Because I would argue that humans really aren't meant to do that and that there is a natural aversion to killing on that scale. But they lost it because of, you know, well, whatever wonders of Western civilization allowed them to kill so many people at once, you know, mentally.
Um, so you can look at the case of, you know, Cortez and the Aztecs and then compare it to, uh, you know, the, again, the, the Native Americans and, you know, and the North American Europeans, you know, coming over. OK, so numbers weren't on their side. That doesn't mean that, you know, it wasn't European guns that still did a lot of the slaughtering. OK, of Native Americans at a level kind of like Jim Jesus said, where it was absolutely intentional genocide. Because, again, for whatever reason, you know, Western civilization seems to think it's okay to, you know, to kill on such a massive scale. Fuck Western civilization. That's just stallion breaking in there. Okay, now, um, now, as far as the blankets go, okay, yes, there are some cases where it would appear to be, no, that didn't really happen, or there's not enough evidence, like, say, that Andrew Jackson did, or that this person did, and that, you know, they passed around these smallpox blankets. But there's some where there it seems to be plenty of evidence that it happened, and, and, and I'm going to address the argument of germ theory. Uh, like that, that they somehow they must have known germ theory or, or understood germ theory. Uh, and and I, I will address that here in just in just a second, because that that has a that also has a very simple you know kind of explanation. Um, so f first things first to understand is that this is biological warfare, the idea of taking smallpox infested blankets and giving them to another population uh, in the hopes of, you know, dwindling that population and killing them off. Um, this is an idea that not with smallpox, but with other things, you know, be it Hannibal launching, uh, you know, uh, 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 jars effectively. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're talking Greek jars, these big goddamn things, you know, with uh, with venomous snakes in them and launching them from his ships. And the snakes would all, you know, attack, uh, uh, you know, the Roman soldiers and whatever. It was a very successful thing. It was one of the ways that, you know, kind of Hannibal ended up fighting a couple wars against Rome, which no one else would ever really be able to do. Uh, and, and there's other, other cases where diseased bodies would, you know, effectively get catapulted into other pop, into cities, uh, you know, to, to, you know, effectively wipe out everybody within the city with disease over time. Like say during a siege, you just had to wait for everybody to get sick and die, you know, but just siege the city and they couldn't go anywhere else. And so you had a very contained, simple biological weapon just by using your own dead that were, you know, your own diseased dead. Uh, you know, and those diseases spread by, you know, ticks, mites, fleas, whatever. Um, so the use of biological warfare in this way is n wasn't a new idea. And certainly, you know, to say that, you know, the, the Europeans invading North America didn't, um, you know, didn't understand germ theory, so they couldn't figure this out is a misnomer because clearly, you know, even hundreds of years before uh, the, the you know, kind of the first written it and then understand this idea of the smallpox blanket. Uh, the first recorded incidents would be during the French and Indian Wars, which would have been, you know, we're talking mid 18th to late 18th century, right? Like 1760s, something like this. OK, uh, but even hundreds of years before that, you have a very clear understanding that, oh, yeah, if we send disease, you know, if we launched diseased things or people, per se, you know, into cities, uh, it will infect the rest of the city. Like, like there was that understanding or they would use rats to, uh, to spread bubonic plague. Right. Like, I mean, that that actually that's kind of how that whole plague you know, became a thing <laughs> is, is that it was weaponized. Um, so there, there was an understanding of that now. You know, you can say you, you could be a kind of on a finer point and say, well, but they they wouldn't know that 
an inanimate object. Like, okay, maybe they could understand that a, that a living thing or a once living thing could spread a disease, but they wouldn't know perhaps that just like an inanimate object could carry um, a disease. Well, here's the thing is that, you know, speaking of like during the Black Plague, okay, which ended the lives of what, you know, 30, 60% of the European, you know, depending on, on your metrics, uh, population, which again, smallpox wiped out you know, 90%, you know, depending on, on what geographic area you're talking about with the Native Americans. But, you know, talking about the Black Plague, one population of people, one culture, I guess you could say, but really it's a culture and an ethnicity, uh, that survived largely the Black Plague were the Jews. And in fact, that's part of the reason that that's part of that long history of the Jews getting blamed for things is, oh, well, the Jews aren't getting sick during the Black Plague. They must be causing it. And this was a, a way of thinking for a lot of people. Now, why did the Jews survive this sort of thing? Why? Ritualistic hand washing? So, you know, so much of Levitical law is all about just cleaning the shit out of things, purifying things through fire. So, you know, the, the, the Black Plague couldn't really spread to them because they wiped it out just with their, you know, their, their religious practices. But did the Jews have an understanding of germ theory? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have, you know, that that somehow, uh, I mean, and this gets into, you know, kind of wild speculation where, okay, well, you know, how did the Jews exactly figure out, you know, like how to protect from germs and other things? Because it seems like Levitical law and Kashrut law, you know, is, is somehow, you know, almost, almost, of course, I'm an atheist, but almost divinely set to protect them, protect them from disease and all these different things, right? Um, how did they figure out that knowledge? Well, I mean, if you're just to take the, you know, the, the, the most base atheist answer, it is that just they saw, it was cause and effect. They saw, or it, it was just effect. They saw the effect. They were so hyper aware of the effects that even though they didn't know the exact scientific cause, they knew enough to say, okay, but when we do this, when we mess with a dead body, this disease happens. So we're, we're going to, we're, we're not going to mess with dead bodies. Uh, or when we have say, you know, like foreign people come into the land, um, if they don't go through certain rituals, we can't really trust that they're not bringing some kind of disease with them or something like this. Again, that's not some kind of argument against foreigners, you know, coming into a country or anything. It, it's really not. But point being is that, you know, they just, they were acutely aware of effects and they had just hints of the cause. Okay, but yeah, no, I don't think the Jews had any idea about what germ theory was. And the Jews even borrowed half their shit from Zoroastrianism, which is even older. And I don't think they knew anything about germ theory. Uh, so so I think I think that argument, and, and Jim Jesus was just making me aware of it. He wasn't espousing it, and I appreciate that. Okay, but I think that argument doesn't really, uh, you know, hold up uh, very well when you consider that there's, there's plenty of incidents, uh, you know, in history where obviously uh, people, you know, knew how to take actions against uh, germs, but had no idea about germ theory. You know, and, and I mean, and I'm just giving a couple of examples here. So anyway, I want to get to the example, the most the most popular example that doesn't appear to be myth. And maybe I'm, I'm open to being wrong, but I, I've yet to see this one get debunked. Some of them I've seen get debunked. This is one that hasn't. Uh, Sir Jeffrey Amherst, uh, he was a commander of the British forces in, in, in North America. Uh, and he specifically said in his journals that he was formulating a plan to reduce, and that's his exact words, reduce the size of the Native American tribes. Um, you know, that, that, well, the ones that were hostile to, you know, to the British crown anyway. 
Uh, so anyway, spring 19 uh, or 1763, uh, you know, there, there was an outbreak uh, of smallpox at, in Fort Pitt. Now, this wasn't against the Native Americans. This was just happening, you know, um, amongst the English, you know, amongst, amongst the British. And so at Fort, uh, at Fort Pitt, um, now, so, so this is, this is interesting. Okay. This gets into an idea called, uh, fomite, which is the concept that they were developing at the time that an inanimate object like a blanket could actually transmit, uh, bacteria, you know, or, or could transmit, you know, a, a disease or, you know, an infectious agent anyway. And, you know, so blankets, handkerchiefs, all this stuff, usually what would happen is, and, and this is the part that we do know. So while, yes, they might not have understood germ theory, they did have an understanding that inanimate objects could spread disease because what they would do, um, you know, with, with fomite is that they usually, like, they would burn them. Okay, they would burn the handkerchiefs, they would burn the blankets of, you know, of, of the people that, of you know, like, say, particularly in this case at Fort Pitt that uh that that had smallpox because they knew that was the only way really to get rid of it of course where did they learn about that from hey maybe they picked it up from the jews because that's what the jews would have done all right so but instead what um what sir jeffrey amherst did at fort pitt he said no 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 don't burn them save them you know set them aside all the handkerchiefs, all, you know, all, all these different, uh, all these different things. So June 24th, 1763, uh, Amherst, you know, one of his guys, uh, uh, a captain, uh, cure, he, you know, <laughs> he get, he did exactly what Amherst want, Sir Amherst wanted him to do. He gave it to the local population, um, you know, of, of native Americans. And uh, I mean, and, and it's crazy because, because even, you know, Captain Acure, he, he came out right and said, he says, I hope it'll have the desired effect. I mean, that's the thing is there's these journals that, you know, back and forth, separate journals going back and forth saying that, you know, well, not just journals, but letters, you know, saying that, oh yeah, 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 we don't, we're, we're going to do this. Now, again, where the myth comes in, I mean, and, and that's just one example, you know, where, where they would do that. Okay. Where, where the myth comes in is that that's what wiped out that that was the singular agent say, you know, that, that it was purposeful, um, that the Europeans did it, you know, like that, that it was, that it was intentional, um, on their part, you know, to, to really, you know, and that that's what caused smallpox to wipe out so much of the native American population. Okay. That's the myth that that's where the problem comes in is that no, okay. It wasn't the blankets that wiped out the, the native Americans from smallpox. It was just smallpox itself spreading the way that it does. However, that doesn't change the fact that people like, you know, Sir Jeffrey Amherst and his underlings, that they were spreading blankets and that one would assume it had the effect, you know, and that there were reports of, of it happening. And there's there's other cases, too, where they talked about it, uh, you, you know, when, when you get into more into the 1800s. Um, and, and then, you know, I mean, then, you, you know, once you get into the you know, into the 1800s, you're talking about the works of Louis Pasteur, who, you know, who would end up, you know, kind of getting into, into germ theory and things like this, or, you know, who'd start, well, I mean, that's where the word pasteurized comes from. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, then, then you would get into more of the scientific proving of the matter. Um, but I would more argue that the use of this form of biological warfare with smallpox itself uh, may have led to a lot of the, I mean, and this is disgusting and unfortunate, Okay, uh, but that would lead to a lot of the medical understanding that would later be developed in the Americas and even in Europe. Um, for you know, it, it's very similar 
to, in my opinion, it's very similar to uh, how in Nazi Germany, you know, this is not an understatement. Over 50% of our medical knowledge, or not not 50%, but so much, no, sorry. What I meant to say, not 50%, but 50, we're probably 50 years advanced in medical knowledge today because of the horrors that Nazi Germany enacted against its own, you know, against Germans, against Jews, against everybody that it did and just didn't have a care for human life. In fact, you know, in the 80s, there was that huge was in Colorado. There was a huge summit saying, like, is it ethical for us to use the medical data learned from the Nazis, you know, in our practice? Because it's just so terrible how it was all discovered. So it's a fact that that, yes, you know, uh, uh, advancements will happen. This is not how they have to happen, but it is how they do happen. Uh, you know, often enough that medical advancements happen because of, you know, just terrible experiments being done. And one could argue that the smallpox blankets were a terrible experiment being done on the Native Americans, which could have led to an understanding of germ theory. Okay, so, you know, it could have just been the precursor to getting that understanding, much like so much of the medical science we have today. Uh, its precursor was, frankly, the wiping out of millions of Jews and, you know, other and, you know people around the world uh, due to, you know, the Axis powers. So I think it, 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 it's very similar, but that doesn't change the fact, like regardless of whether or not, uh, you know, in my opinion, regardless of whether or not smallpox naturally wiped out 90 percent of, you know, the, the Native American, North American population or whether it was done, you know, it, it, if that's what happened, that's what happened. But it doesn't change the fact that we have plenty of, of historical evidence that, no, the, you know, the, the colonials, you know, the, the European settlers, whatever, uh, you know, the British, whatever terms you want to run with, okay, were absolutely engaging in intentional genocide. Okay, they may, you know, their what their intentions may not have been the the real catalyst of what wiped out so many Native Americans, but that doesn't mean they didn't want it to be. That doesn't mean that they weren't trying. And that you know, and and so in my opinion, yeah, I mean, particularly in the case of Amherst, and there's a few others, um, you know, independent sources that smallpox blankets was clearly an idea. You know, Fort Pitt wasn't the only one. Um, so yeah, yeah. So again, the myth is is that there's some cases where it doesn't appear to be true, and that also the myth was is that it wasn't just the smallpox. You know, it was really a more natural spread of smallpox that did the bulk of the wiping out. It wasn't the smallpox blankets themselves. Um, so that's you know maybe that's where the confusion kind of lies uh, with some people, but that's the nuance that's required. You know, when when talking about that. So anyway, hopefully hopefully I. <laughs> describe that that's there's so much history there like you kind of got to get into the french indian wars and all this um all right i was uh, yeah I, i'm an hour in i don't know if i if i want to dive into uh, into the next one but uh, all right well let's do it because it actually it shouldn't take it shouldn't take a terrible um, amount of time and this has to do <laughs> this is another historical uh one and it has to do actually with cannibals of, of all things <laughs> So maybe not a funny subject, but anyway, here's the question. Hi, Brian. I have a history question for you. I've always been fascinated by cannibalism. I know, weird. And recently I read a book uh, Among Cannibals by Carl Lumholtz, uh, the account of a Norwegian explorer's travels in Australia in the 1880s. He lived and traveled with the Aborigines for a period of time and talks about their way of life and cannibalistic practices. In the book, he describes the Aborigines as a fairly carefree people who lived in small family tribes and were essentially hunter-gatherers, but they were 
were very territorial, warlike, and would hunt and kill people from other tribes and often eat them. Also, there are scientists who believe that endocannibalism, the eating of others from your community, usually after death, which also there's a, is it ectocannibalism, where it's from the outside, or exocannibalism, uh, maybe it's exocannibalism, where, where you, know, you eat people from outside your tribe, uh, both of which are are certainly practiced, uh, may have been a common practice in prehistoric times due to certain genes that we have that protect against diseases caused by eating other people. I wonder what your thoughts are on the practice of cannibalism. I get the idea that you hold a belief that prehistoric peoples lived fairly peaceful lives, yet when modern humans, uh, quote-unquote modern humans, have come across people living as hunter-gatherers, they're sometimes very hostile and, dare I say, uh, savage. Would love to hear your opinion on this sometime. Okay. So... Yeah. Now there is, you know, DNA, you know, evidence, there is evidence, bottom line, there is evidence that yes, uh, humans, you know, even, you know, some of the oldest forms of homo sapiens, you know, we're talking 600,000 years ago that they engaged in cannibalism. It's, it's true. Okay. Uh, and is there any, you know, when, when you're that close kind of to, to more the, the, I guess the, you know, humanity not breaking away from, um, how to put this, from their instincts, you know? I mean, like, what makes a human human, in my opinion? Not, not just saying homo sapien. What makes a human being human? Or, or a person a person? Because it could be something other than a human, maybe a dolphin or an elephant, who knows? Uh, what makes a human human, in my opinion, is their ability to act outside of instinct. Now, acting within instinct... I'm not really sure where there would be this hard line that you couldn't eat other humans if you had to, you know, if you had to survive. Um, so, you know, I don't debate that, that there's evidence because it's, you know, as, as, as our understanding of science goes, it's pretty hard, you know, pretty hard evidence that, yeah, humans have eaten other humans, uh, you know, over time. Now, the, the question, you know, the quote unquote term modern humans. OK, this is where, I, you know, I would kind of shake things up a bit. Um, so there is a point, and I, I talk about this often because I think it is such a seminal moment, you know, like what 9-11 is to America, this event is to the human species, okay, to Homo sapiens. And that event, 70,000 years ago, the Toba supervolcano, I've talked about it plenty, plenty of times. The theory goes is that when the Toba supervolcano went off, you know, 70,000 years ago, that it, um... You know, it wiped it wiped out the human population to anywhere between fifteen hundred to ten thousand. You know, the, anywhere in that estimate. And regardless, in my opinion, of where you sit within that estimate, here's kind of my simple answer to this, but I'll expound a bit more. Regardless where you sit within that estimate, if humans engaged in cannibalism, um, certainly of like the living, <laughs> you know. Uh, to say nothing of the dead, if human humans engaged in cannibalism uh, of the living, let's say particularly, then you like there's no way we'd be here because they would have eaten each other off. Like I mean, not out off. <laughs> right? I mean, like like there just there wouldn't be any humans left. Uh, and and I imagine at the time that finding now here here's kind of the kind of the flip side of that. I imagine at the time there was. Um, there would have been a food shortage because obviously it wasn't just humans affected by the Toba supervolcano. So were the humans eating their dead? Maybe, but it would only be their dead. It's not like they would go around killing other humans uh, to be able to eat 
or you know you know like like just, just that just I really don't think that that could have just by the fact that we're here that could not have happened so it you know when you're talking about cannibalism it becomes like a, a very you know a, you got to be really careful about the conversation are we talking about killing people to eat them or are we talking about eating the dead that have already died for other reasons Okay, because when it comes down to eating the dead who have died for other reasons, I could see that practice being very widespread, not just among Homo sapiens, Neanderthals would have, you know, there's evidence that they did that too. Um, you know, and, and that's the big question, right, is that, you know, were they, were they you know, eating just, just people that died off for, for very natural reasons? And, and that doesn't really, you know, if that's the reason why they did it, that honestly doesn't affect, I have another point to make, but that honestly doesn't affect uh, my, my concepts of empathy or that, uh, or and it doesn't change that humans lived a very peaceful life, okay? Because, um, you know, it, it would. Well, you know, again, if you're just waiting for, you know, if, if you're only eating them after they die, you're not killing the humans, so you were still living a very peaceful life, right? So even if they, again, it depends on how we define cannibalism. Are you eating them after they're dead, or are you eating, or are you killing them to eat them? If it's just eating them after they're dead, then yes, you know, my my theory still holds true that yes, humans lived uh, very, very peaceful lives. Now, let's let's expound on this a little bit, okay? There is the theory that the reason, you know, we were just talking about during, uh, you know, the smallpox blanket conversation, we were talking about the Jews, okay, and how they seem to have an understanding to some degree of germ theory and, and, and some other things, or at least they had very, very advanced health codes that they really shouldn't have had, okay, but how did they develop these? What was the natural process that went through? Did God actually give them to them? No, of course, I'm an atheist. I don't think so. Uh, so I think they observed things that they kind of figured out what was round about the cause, even if they didn't know the specifics. So what could have happened is that the Jews or the Zoroastrians who, you know, maybe they originated this, you know, the, the Levitical health code, you know, before the Jews even did. Um, and that, that gets into a whole other historical conversation. You know, what exactly did Abraham know that he taught the rest of the Hebrews? I mean, that, well, that, that, that's a whole other thing. Um, so what, what may have happened is that, you know, either the Jews or Zoroastrians, whatever, ancient peoples saw that eating certain types of bodies with certain signs on them, maybe hair loss, other things, you know, uh, white blotches, whatever the case that would show off some kind of disease in a person, they would see that other people would get the disease after they ate that person. And, and this is, this is going to go a little further. Okay. So they, you know, the idea of eating the dead became anathema because they, they equated that with disease. Now, here's the interesting thing is that perhaps, and this is a theory, okay, this is actually kind of a popular theory, that perhaps the reason that there is, uh, you know, an abolition of, of eating pork, like the, or I'm sorry, prohibition against eating pork in Judaism is because pig supposedly, you know, pork tastes a lot like human flesh. And so they equated it with the disease and with the, you know, maybe there was some kind of uh, human dignity involved, like the idea of burying the dead became a thing when civilization came around. Um, you know, maybe there was this, you know, equating of, okay, that's like eating a human being. We don't allow for that. That's a, that's ixnay on the ombre these days, boys. You know, we're, we're not going to do that at all. And so that's where the prohibition uh, on, on eating pork came from, is because it reminded these ancient peoples of cannibalism, which they now knew, uh, or which they now thought, shall we say, was a bad idea. Um, so 
Yeah, I, I mean, again, I don't, I don't, I really can't think of the reason why eating the dead would be seen as, as some kind of, you know, some kind of terrible thing, especially, I mean, you know, kind of the person's dead and, and you know it, you know. Uh, it, now, the idea of, so, okay, so so I can accept that that, that might have been, that might have been a popular thing to eat the dead. Now, the idea of killing people and eating them, this is what usually people think about with cannibalism, right? They start thinking of Hannibal Lecter and all this stuff, uh, where he would kill people to eat them. That practice, I think, is not so widespread. And I think that is something that started with moder- more modern humans, um, and probably for, ironically, religious reasons. The same reason that cannibalism of perhaps even the dead could have gone away is the same reason that cannibalism of the living could have become a thing uh, because you know you, you end up with in fact I don't know if anyone's ever seen this it's actually a pretty good movie it's a weird weird ass movie but but it's pretty good uh, and it came out in 99 it's uh, Ravenous um, this guy Pierce is in it I mean you know whole David Arquette whole bunch of, uh, of, of different actors uh, you know that do a hell of a job and in this movie it takes place during the Spanish-American War or I'm sorry, uh, the the Mexican Mexican American War, Spanish American Wars. After that, Rough Riders. Woo. <laughs> uh, the uh, this takes place during the Mexican American War, and in it you have this captain that like he figures out somehow that eating other people actually makes you like really power powerful, gives you these regenerative abilities, even like maybe makes you younger or something. I haven't seen the movie in a while, but that's kind of the gist. Um, and while that's just a movie, I could see where a an ancient religion of some kind could get started that would believe in that. That maybe like eating or drinking the blood of your enemies or eating the flesh of your enemies or something like this, uh, you know, could could become a faith. I mean, honestly, it's still a faith today, not of your enemies, but look at the Catholics. They literally eat their God. I mean, how abominable is that, right? But, but I mean, they, they eat their God, uh, you know, in, in hopes of, of, you know, having salvation and all this stuff, right, and getting some kind of grand power. So it's not so crazy because there's a billion people on the planet Earth right now that practice or that think they practice this, that they literally, you know, because they believe in what is it, the transmutation, that, you know, the blood, even though it's just grape juice that they're pouring or the wine or whatever actually becomes the blood of Christ, that that little wafer actually becomes the flesh of Christ when it enters your throat. Uh, you know, I mean, they really believe this. Or they're supposed to. So, you know, cannibalism still happens today. And it's very popular. <laughs> All right. It's just they think they're eating Jesus Christ instead of other people. And, you know, and, and honestly, actually, I mean, in their mind, Jesus Christ is very much alive. He is risen, right? So cannibalism, not so crazy an idea. Definitely a religious construct. Okay. It, now, the idea of eating the dead, not the living. Okay. That's the, you know, the, the idea of eating the dead may not be a religious construct. I can see a lot of reasons why that would develop. All right. Genetic or otherwise. Um, but the, you know, the eating of the living or of killing the living to eat, to, to eat them, whatever. I mean, that's, that's still very, very popular today. And most people just don't even think about it. You know, like how twisted is that? that people think they're actually eating Jesus Christ. Now, understand Protestantism doesn't believe in the transmutation. You know, they just think that they're, you know, they know they're just eating a cracker. You know, they know they're just eating, you know, or drinking grape juice or something, and it's just supposed to be symbolic and representative. They're not literally doing it. Uh, But, and I'm, I'm not really necessarily judging either one as being better because, well, again, I'm an atheist. But, um, yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, bottom line, and, uh, you know, I can definitely see uh, that, yeah, eating of the dead could have been a popular thing uh, amongst humans, even in a very peaceful human society, because what what's not peaceful, you know, there, right? Um, I mean, it could be disturbing, you know, maybe, like, I mean, maybe some kind of ideas could develop around that. I mean, you know, understand, I mean, because I also think that, you know, ancient humans, you know, we're talking Paleolithic humans, um, that, that Paleolithic humans, like, you know, they didn't have a grand understanding of things like that, that humanity might have evolved. Like the idea is, is that, you know, like, say a woman and please, I, I don't mean this in any like, you know, sexual slander or slur, but like a woman would want semen from everybody in the tribe. Right. That's kind of how the how the theory goes. And every woman would want that. It's not just one. Right. Um, because, you know, they figured that like the, the theory goes and you still see this in modern hunter gatherers. The theory goes is that you would, uh, you know, you're getting all the power of the tribe. All right. So could that pass on to now you're not going to kill anybody in the tribe? Because, again, a lot of that's all celebration of life. You're not going to kill anybody in the tribe. But if somebody died, you know, is eating their flesh, is that like making them a part of you or something like it's it's not a hard leap for for people to kind of think that way. And you could say that that's becoming a religion. Well, maybe. But again, it's a lot different than, you know, killing somebody to eat them. And there have been secret societies that do that. There's there's secret societies still today that do this, where like it's part of their what is it, the leopard men that uh like in, in, in Africa or something? Or I, I think that's it. Maybe in well, anyway. Um, you know, their theory is, and there's others that do this, their theory is is that yeah, you know, they, they go out, they they kill a person and then they eat them. You know, they pass the flesh around. Uh you know, Yeah. So you know, nothing, I, I don't necessarily see the harm in, I mean, other than the potential of disease and all that, but clearly it seems like ancient humans figured that one out too, uh, you know, that of, of eating the dead, but then, you know, killing somebody to eat them, that's a whole other ball game. And, and as far as like it being seen in modern hunter gatherers, I, I can only imagine that's some kind of like outcropping of animism, but I don't think like humans in their quote unquote natural zero state you know, blank slate are not religious. You know, I mean, they're just not like they, they don't, they don't, they don't normally develop religion. Something kind of brings that on. And, and that's a whole other conversation to have, um, you know, is a psilocybin mushrooms, you know, what, what brings on religion for humans? Uh, <laughs> that, that's, that's a whole other conversation. So anyway, um, I, I hope that answers that. I mean, that's, that's kind of my thoughts on it. I don't, Again, I don't see like if it's just eating people after they naturally die uh, or, you know, whatever happens to them that they die. Like, I, I don't see where that that doesn't really stand in, in any way. It doesn't debunk or stand in contrast with the theory that that humans, you know, in a state of nature uh, are very peaceful creatures. You know, re- really doesn't. But then, you know, if, if we're talking about like Hannibal Lecter style cannibalism, well, that that I think doesn't fit the mold that's just a fucked up human being that's fucked up human beings <laughs> you know that that kill to eat another human uh, because you know empathy just just wouldn't allow for that to happen and if that was how humans were meant to be like i said we never would have survived till now after the Tolba super volcano just wouldn't have happened if that was what humans thought was order of the day so there you go um okay now let's get into real quick uh because i'm already running long here i want to get into my uh, my album picks uh, for the week. And these are, you're you're probably going to be shocked. Okay. (laughs) But these are just, they are so, so good. And you wouldn't, you really wouldn't expect it. Um, but, but they are. 
So the two albums I'm going to give you, they're actually both by the same guy. Obviously, he has a band behind him. But Michael Bolton. <laughs> I know you didn't see it coming, but you got to, you, please, you got to listen to me, okay? These are serious, hard rock, near metal albums, okay, by Michael Bolton. This is not the pop stuff. Not that I mind that either. Like, I, I'm all about it. Soul Provider, please. That shit's sexy as hell, Okay. But he had, now, understand that Michael Bolton had, he had like, he had two albums in the 70s, don't bother with those. But he had an album, he had a self-titled album called Michael Bolton, well actually his, his first album was Michael Bolton, which is, I guess his real name. Uh, but his, his first album from 83, Michael Bolton, and then his 1985 sophomore album, Everybody's Crazy, both of these albums are hard rock albums. They are not pop. They are not a bunch of love songs. In fact, the song, the, the title track off of uh, 85's Everybody's Crazy is badass. And it's like the only song he'll ever really include from from those albums and from that era. But man, I mean, these are just great rockin' albums. I mean, you know, you, you don't necessarily want to call him metal, but understand this, that his guitarist at the time in 83 and 85, his guitarist was Bruce Kulick. Now, who's if you don't know who Bruce Kulick is, he's one of the greatest guitarists of all time. Uh, Bruce Kulick is the guy that ended up, so with Kiss, okay, with my, my personal favorite band, Kiss, um, you know, when, when Kiss, after Ace Fraley and Peter Chris left, of course, uh, Eric Carr filled in for, for Peter Chris, uh, late, great Eric Carr. And then for Ace, when Ace finally left after Creatures of the Night, even though he really wasn't there for Creatures of the Night, um, you know, you ended up with uh, Vinnie Vincent, who only did one album and then disappeared. And after Vinnie Vincent left, well, then they got uh, Mark St. John for Animalize. But then Mark St. John came down with a condition where he couldn't play with his hands. And he's, I think he's dead now, too. Um, Animalize, boy, great album. But anyway, after Animalize, when you ended up in 85 and 86 with with Asylum, which is shy of my favorite Kiss album, maybe my favorite Kiss album, uh, they brought on Bruce Kulick. And they kept Bruce Kulick from then up until all the way until the reunion tour. Uh, you know, that they did with Psycho Circus and, you know, 96, 97 and all that. Uh, so he was Kiss's, you know, main man as far as guitar playing goes. I mean, yeah, I, I, I know Paul plays rhythm guitar, obviously, but he was their main man. He was their lead guitarist from, you know, for 10 years and during, in my opinion, their best albums, you know, Asylum, uh, uh, Crazy Nights, Let's Put the X in Sex. There's a couple songs off that, even though it's the greatest hits album, uh, but you also get to hear Eric Carr sing Beth in that. Uh you know, and, and he was there for um, uh, Hot in the Shade. I love that. Read My Body. What a great song. <laughs> he was there for, uh, you know, he was there for Revenge. He was there for Carnival Souls. Uh, and in fact, Creatures of the Night, which again, had very little to do with Ace Fraley, they re-released Creatures of the Night when they had such a solid lineup with it being Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Bruce Kulick, and Eric Carr. They re-released it, and on the new cover... Um, when they re I think they re-released in 87 with the new cover, they had Bruce Kulick on the cover. Okay. Because that, I mean, that's how much they invested in this guy. Cause it's like, no, this, this is the man, this, this guy's amazing. Cause Bruce Kulick is fucking amazing. And he has his own solo albums too. But anyway, my point being is that originally people, not a lot of people know this. Michael Bolton was a metal singer and he had a metal band. He had Bruce Kulick, you know, he had the goods. And in fact, Bruce Kulick even still, I think contributed somewhat, uh, to 87's The Hunger, but the hunger is when really Michael Bolton started making a name for himself and kind of became, you know, the pop icon uh, that he would that he would end up becoming. And then in 89, of course, he'd have Soul Provider and, you know, 
91's Time, Love, and Tenderness, and, you know, the rest is history. Um, but Michael Bolton's first two albums, I know you're thinking I'm nuts. You're thinking everybody's crazy, but that's the thing. That's one of the best songs ever written <laughs> is Everybody's Crazy off the 85 Michael Bolton album, Everybody's Crazy. So 83 Michael Bolton, 85 Everybody's Crazy, both of those albums, especially the 85 Everybody's Crazy, both of those albums are badass. I mean, just great hard rock albums. Uh, I mean, you, you know, you have awesome guitar riffs, great guitar solos during it. Michael Bolton's voice is tailor-made for metal. He really, you know, if, if he held on to it, I mean, yeah, it was more of a hard rock thing, but he could have easily been up there with Joel and Turner, uh, Rob Helford, in my opinion. You know, he could have been, like, I can only imagine, I, I love, there's, there's, uh, there was like a couple songs, I guess, that were done. It was called Trinity, where it was Bruce Dickinson, of course, of Iron Maiden, uh, uh, and then you had Jeff Tate of the Great Queensryche, one of my favorite bands. Um, and then you had uh, uh, Rob Helford, and that was the Trinity, because these are like the three operatic, you know, really high-pitched kind of, you know, human sirens, right? You could have had, uh, you know, a, a quad whatever, a quadrinity, <laughs> if you added in Michael Bolton with that, if he stayed with the whole metal thing. I mean, I'm, gl- I'm glad as shit that Bruce Kulick ended up going to Kiss, because he made my favorite era of Kiss, you know, from you know, from like 86. Well, really my favorite era is from lick it up or really, I guess creatures of the night all the way up to, uh, to carnival of souls. Um, even though I, I like psycho circus, I love all the new albums, but yeah, man, those two Michael Bolton albums, hard fucking rockers. Seriously. You, you don't even know until you listen to it. Just, just listen to everybody's crazy. I mean, just, if, if you don't believe me, just listen to that one and then you can check out the rest of the albums. They're great. Uh, so there, there's my oddball, uh, uh, album picks of the week. And, uh, and, and there, I, that's enough. <laughs> that's enough Q and a for this week. Got some other episodes coming out this week as well. Uh, for you. Um, I have the, the, the Inarchipoco review show that I'll be releasing as well as, uh, I have another, uh, comic books top eight, um, that'll be coming out in the next, uh, couple days here. So, and then we've got a huge sovereign tech, got a sex and science hour coming out, but yeah, definitely the sovereign tech is going to be crazy this week. So there you go. Woo. I'll see everybody on the other side of all of this. You just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com, that's S-O-V-R-Y-N Tech.com, and connect with us there. Find links from today's show and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to the evolution.